in the middle of the night on June 24th, a 12-story beachfront condominium in Surfside, Florida, partially collapsed. As of today, 97 people have died, 11 are injured, and one is unaccounted for. Long-term degradation of the concrete support structures and corrosion of the reinforcing steel due to saltwater penetration was reported as far back as 2018. And there are even reports that there were problems found back as far back as 2007. Plans had been approved to fix the problem, but no work had been started. And officials in Florida are now concerned that there may be other structures in similar danger. And other high-rise condos in the Miami Beach area have been evacuated. On June 5th, 1976, the Teton Dam in Idaho collapsed, sending a wall of water out of the Teton River Canyon and through the plain taking with it everything in its path. I believe 11 people perished in that flood. A lot of mistakes were made in the construction of the dam, not the least of which was building on rock that was porous, filled with fissures and caves, and then trying to fill the fissures with grout. The dam collapsed before it was even completed. Now, one of the issues with construction like this in Florida and other areas, is the type of land that's there. One reason people go to the beach is to put their toes in the sand and just relax as the waves roll up on the beach. Um, temporary structures, you know, the little cabanas they put up, beach chairs, those types of things, they don't have much of a problem with water and sand. Houses and high-rise buildings do. It takes a lot of engineering and work to build structures that will withstand the waves and the shifting sand. And it takes constant vigilance to ensure that those structures remain safe. We are almost finished with our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Kingdom Manifesto. A few years ago, there was a slogan in Christian circles describing a person coming to Christ. I found Jesus. You can see on bumper stickers and other things. And, of course, there were cartoons and other things making fun of that slogan. At the end of the second series of the series of Chosen, Jesus is portraying, is telling Matthew that the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, is a map. Matthew is perplexed. He wonders what Jesus means. So Jesus explains that if someone wants to find him, they should look for the kinds of people that are described by that section, by the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. I like the way the writers of this series presented the truth that Jesus and his kingdom are for the folks described in that first part of Matthew 5. I believe that if someone were to say that they were looking for Jesus and what he was all about, we could do much worse than telling them to read and study the Sermon on the Mount. Over the last few months, we have seen what kind of people the kingdom is for and what kind of people are for the kingdom. 
We have seen that the kingdom is a kingdom of a righteousness, a rightness of the heart. It goes far beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes. It is not a matter of following rules and regulations in order to make us a better person or to make us right with God. It is a matter of giving up our kingdom and our way of living and giving our allegiance to the true kingdom and the king's way of living and then becoming more and more righteous as we become more and more like him. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus is painting a picture that his hearers would have recognized. Back in first century Palestine, there were many areas that were dry a good bit of the year. Modern technology and and so on in Israel now, they're able to avoid some of that. When the rains did come, they often were very heavy and would carve low valleys and gullies in the land. During the heavy rains, uh, they would leave a layer of sand when it dried up. During the heavy rains, rivers would also overflow, as we saw back in our study of Joshua a few months back. When the Israelites came to the river, the Jordan River, it was overflowing its banks. Anyone wanting to build a house along a river, or one of the dry gullies for that matter, would have to make sure that their house was going to be safe from any flooding that was likely to happen at some point. The way to do this was to dig down deep through the sand to where there was solid rock. Then they could anchor the house to that rock. A foolish builder, perhaps lazy, or in a hurry, or simply trying to save money, might just erect a house right on the sand. Perhaps the individual would think, well, a bad storm rarely comes through here, so I'm safe. Well, Jesus' teachings and the right-side kingdom they bring run counter to the prevailing culture, as we have seen. As it was in the first century, so it is today. Recent polling by the Barna Group found that 51% of adults in the United States believe that they have a biblical worldview. Only 6% of Americans actually do have a biblical worldview. The vast majority of people in our culture don't even know what the Bible teaches, let alone try to practice it. (laughs) Thanks, Captain Obvious. A biblical worldview is defined in the study as believing, among other things, that humans are born with a sin nature and can only be saved through Jesus Christ, that the only way to heaven is through faith in Christ as Savior, that wealth is given to them to manage for God's purposes, that the best measure of success is consistent obedience to God, and that it is important for their faith to influence their life, and that the Bible should be their primary guidance in matters of morality. Well, not only do Jesus' teachings run counter to the culture out there, they also run counter to much of today's Christian culture 
We can look at the polling and say, well, those folks probably aren't really Christians. And in many cases, we will be correct. Let's take a look at the numbers a little closer. In the group known as spiritually active governance engaged conservatives, these are the people who vote in the elections, they campaign for candidates, they do voter drives, all that. 88% believe they have a biblical worldview, but only 44% actually do. 68% of self-identified Christians believe they have a biblical worldview. The percentage that do indeed have a biblical worldview is 9. Wait, there's more. The percentage of people who self-identify as born again and believe that they have a worldview that lines up with Scripture is 80. But those who actually do have such a worldview make up only 19%. It's a little better among evangelicals. 81% of those who attend an evangelical church believe they have a biblical worldview. And 21% actually do. A dispassionate observer might say that we have a problem. Well, I am anything but dispassionate. And I say we have a serious problem in the visible church today. To get a little ahead of myself... I would go so far as to say that Christianity in the West, particularly the United States, is building houses on sand. At the end of his sermon, Jesus wraps everything up in verses 21 to 27. After warning us of the false prophets that are out there and saying that their fruit will reveal them, Jesus then gives us a picture of both what that fruit looks like and what kind of fruit a genuine disciple, what the fruit of a genuine disciple looks like. He states that there will be those who will call him Lord and will tell of all the wonderful things they did in his name. They prophesied, they drove out demons, they worked miracles. Sounds like the kind of folks we would like to hang out with, right? What does Jesus say to them? As Buzzy told us last week, he says, basically, who are you? I don't know you. Get out of my sight, you evildoers. These are the folks who hear Jesus' words, but don't put them into practice. They've done all sorts of good deeds in Jesus' name, but the fruit in their lives shows that these things were not done out of their allegiance and loyalty to the king, but out of a selfish or at least misguided desire. If you remember back in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus made it clear that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather came to fulfill it. It's not a matter of completely leaving the law behind, but it is a matter of the rightness of the heart that goes beyond simply keeping rules and regulations to having righteousness written on and fulfilled in our hearts in increasing measure as we follow Jesus. Excuse me, I was a bug trying to get in. As we follow Jesus and learn him. 
I believe that a large part of the problem today is the truncated gospel that is preached. If you were to ask most Christians what the gospel is, you would hear something along the lines of, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, and if we accept him as our Savior, we'll go to heaven when we die. Now that is true, as far as it goes, but it's not quite the whole story. It's interesting that neither Jesus nor the apostles said anything about asking Jesus into your heart. Paul says in Romans 10, But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believing with our heart and confessing Jesus as Lord are both part of the equation. What's another word for Lord? This is the audience participation part of the the sermon. Yahweh, Jehovah, okay. Take it down just a level from the word that means God. What's another word for Lord? Okay, Adonai, meaning master, king, could be king, yeah. Now, if someone is your master, your king, your Lord, what would they expect from you? Total complete obedience, yeah, yeah. If you believe in someone, you trust them, right? We trust Jesus, that what he says is true and right, and that the way he teaches us is the best way. In fact, the earliest converts to Jesus after Pentecost were known as followers of the way. It's because of the manner in which they live their lives, how they walk through life. The term Christian was originally a derogatory term, which meant that believers were little Christ. They were making fun of them. In other words, when the pagans in Antioch saw the followers of the way of Jesus, they saw Jesus. The term gospel means good news. Back in Roman times, the word was used to speak of the royal announcement made when a new Caesar came to the throne. Even words like Lord and Son of God were commonly used of the Roman emperors. When Paul used these terms to refer to Jesus and what he had done on the cross, he could have been saying that Jesus was like Caesar, only more so. I think if we look at the Old Testament prophecies about the good news, especially in Isaiah chapters 40 and 52, and you can look those up on your own sometime, this good news is more than simply a coming Messiah. 
The good news in Isaiah is that God himself, Yahweh, the living and active true God, is on the move. I think it's where C.S. Lewis got his idea of Aslan being on the move. He is coming in person to set everything right. The good news of a Roman emperor was that everything was now going to be set in order because this new emperor had come to the throne. This was the good news that the early church proclaimed to the world, that the true king had come, that his death on the cross and the resurrection was really his coronation, and that he would return someday to finally set all things right. They proclaimed that this king had the right to call for all to give their allegiance to him and follow him, obeying what he commanded. He earned this right, not through force of arms, but through the power of love. Now, many in Christianity, unfortunately, have turned this good news into what N.T. Wright calls good advice. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved, and you'll go to heaven when you die. I have actually heard preachers say that becoming a Christian is a sensible thing to do. It makes sense that if you want to go to heaven and not hell, if you want to be a better husband or wife, if you want to not worry, become a Christian. We've become so set on preaching against works righteousness that we have gone to the other extreme of proclaiming what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. In verses 21 to 27, Jesus is telling us that what we do must be more than just doing things, even good things, in Jesus' name. We can proclaim Jesus as Lord and do all the things that we think we're supposed to do as good Christians. We can read our Bible, go to church, give money, work in the church, depending on what group we're in. We can work for social justice or work to make the country moral again. We can give to causes and support this or that candidate. We can build large ministries and be in demand as leaders. We can do all these things, and yet here, I never knew you. Because we end with nothing more than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says that it is those who hear his words, here in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in the Gospels, and do them. They're the ones who are building their house on the rock. Their foundation is deep and firm, and there is no storm that can bring their house down. Those who hear his words and don't do them are the ones who build their house on shifting sand. No matter how wonderful the house may look, when the storm comes, it will be swept away. Now, the sources I consulted all pretty much agree that the storms that are in view here can either be the storms of life or they could be the final judgment when Jesus stands and judges everyone. Building on the rock of Jesus' teachings will enable us to stand in the midst of the stuff of life and will be the reason that we will stand in the judgment day. 
Verse 24 begins with the word, therefore, meaning that what comes after relates to what came before. Those who stand before Jesus and brag about all the wonderful things they have done in his name have to answer for what they've neglected. Things like being humble and meek, showing mercy and grace, mourning and being pure-hearted. The things that they did will be put up against the standard of being salt and light, of treating all others with respect and not retaliating. Everything will hinge on what is inside, in the heart. What about us? Do we practice our faith to be seen by others, lording it over those who don't have it together like we do? Are we proud and vengeful, refusing to show mercy? Do we plot revenge on those who do us wrong? Do we act outwardly righteous, yet harbor sin in our hearts? Do we worry because we still think that we are the ones who have to do it, rather than trusting our Father? Do we judge others and try our hardest to change them, instead of taking them to the Father and asking Him to work in them? The first letter of the Apostle John tells us that if we truly belong to God, we will do what he commands. Living as he lived, loving as he loved. Jesus boiled down the whole of the law and the prophets into love God with your entire being and love others as yourself. That's building on the rock. It's not salvation by works. Rather, it's works arising in us because we are saved. We confess Jesus as Lord, Master, King. We give up on our kingdom and throw our allegiance to the only true King. As we learn the way of Jesus, the Holy Spirit embeds the true righteousness of the heart and causes us to grow more and more like Jesus. Will we always live up to our identity? <laughs> All you have to do is spend any amount of time with me or anybody else to find out that that is not true. But we will show Jesus in our lives more and more as we spend time learning him and doing what he commands. And that will become more and more naturally. Back in my days as an athlete, way back then, the way I became better at certain skills was to learn from someone whose skills had those skills and was good at it. And then to practice those skills over and over again, many times with teammates. It's the same with following Jesus. There's an ancient Greek fable that says, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. We live in a culture that is becoming increasingly divided into factions that refuse to see past their own noses or even attempt to come to any kind of understanding. They only know one thing, the thing that they believe is important. We have the opportunity and even the responsibility to show another way, not a middle way, 
but a way that transcends all others. The way of Jesus. Citizens of the kingdom of God know one thing, Jesus. Everything else flows from that. Let's help each other build our houses on Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Then when the storms come, whatever form they may take, we will stand. Let's pray.